Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Big E here, and it's Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law, statutes, cases from the Court of Appeals, Virginia Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, Fourth Circuit, that relate to what you do on a daily basis. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia, whether you work on the road as a sheriff, police officer, fire marshal? And we've been talking a lot about, recently about stops, calls for service, and uh, frisks. So we're going to talk about that more today. And I want to talk about three cases that sort of involve the concept of collective knowledge. In other words, when can you rely on information that's given to you by somebody else when you haven't vetted it yourself necessarily, but it's telling you, maybe your other fellow officers are telling you either orally over the radio or in a message, or maybe just left a note in your uh, records management system, you know, watch out for this guy. He, he's had a gun the last time I dealt with him, or he's a felon who's known to carry guns or whatever. When can you rely on that? Um, when the person is the person that you've stopped, but also maybe when the person's a passenger in the car and they're not even the, uh, you're just surprised to find the person in the car. They're not the person that you stopped. When can you pat that passenger down? They haven't committed any offense, but they're lawfully detained and you get information that says, hey, this person might have a gun on them. And so we're extending kind of a conversation from last week. We talked about Robinson and these Fourth Circuit cases and so on, uh, and Samson. You know, when can you pat somebody down in a car for a firearm? As we get into these cases, um, as always, uh, I hope you guys are getting something out of the podcast, whether it's, it's useful. We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, obviously, if you listen to us that way. And we're trying to give you information that you might need going forward. I am trying to keep track of this special session, which starts next week in the Virginia General Assembly. There's a lot of bills um, that people have been talking about. Very little has actually shown up and actually substantively been proposed. Only just now, a couple of days before the session starts, um, you know, really like here we are 72 hours before. Now, finally, we're getting to see the text of what's actually being proposed. Are we seeing uh, these proposals sort of hit the um, official public site? So there is a proposal, for example, to create a state cause of action um, for deprivation of civil rights. It would be like the 19 US, 18 U.S.C. 1983 uh, deprivation of rights, privileges, and immunities, but it would be under Virginia law, state law, and this would not have qualified immunity. It also wouldn't have sovereign immunity, which is something we haven't talked about a lot, but it basically allows the government to be sued um, even for simple negligence, not even gross negligence, but simple negligence. It would be a huge change to the law in the Commonwealth of Virginia regarding police liability. And, um, you know, so we'll see what happens. It, um, you know, it, it's, I mean, it would really rewrite everything that there is to say about police liability and government liability when it comes to law enforcement. And um, so we'll definitely keep an eye on that and what happens to that code section. We don't really know how long the special session is going to last. We don't really understand what the rules of it are. We don't understand what they're going to do about debate, if there's going to be debate or what, or how this is going to work. Um, so, you know, because a special session is usually pretty short and usually focused on maybe one issue. This is focused on a lot of issues. So we'll just have to keep an eye on it and let you know. So here we are back now talking about the questions of uh, stops and frisks for weapons in instances where you may believe that somebody has a firearm on them, but let's say you didn't get the information yourself. It came to you from another person. And I want to talk about three cases that address this question. One is a case called Smith that's from the Virginia Supreme Court. Uh, one is a case called Edmund, which is from the Court of Appeals back in 2016. 
And then the last one is this recent case called MacArthur, which was just decided on July 28th of 2020. And all of them kind of talk in one way or another about this, what was called the collective knowledge doctrine. So let me talk about uh, the Smith case, because the Smith case is a very straightforward case in a lot of ways. And it provides a pretty simple, but I think important rule for you in uh, conducting traffic stops. So Smith is a case where the officers stop a vehicle and they stop the vehicle for an equipment violation. They receive an alert through their system that the passenger in the car, not the driver of the car, but the passenger in the car, um, was probably armed and is a narcotic seller or user. And they get this through their local records management system. They had contracted with, if you're familiar with Pistol, that's one of the records management systems that law enforcement uses in Virginia. So they were using, uh, they had bought Pistol, they were using Pistol. Now this alert got entered by a detective several months before. And this detective entered the alert in the records management system because he knew, he had previously arrested the defendant for possession of firearm by convicted felon about, about a year before this traffic stop in this case took place. And the detective also entered the information knowing and putting in and advising that the defendant had been arrested for possession with, with intent to distribute cocaine about six months before the traffic stop took place. So the officers uh, know that the passenger in the car, the vehicle's been stopped for an equipment violation, right, which doesn't involve necessarily any, any danger. The passenger is lawfully detained because he's part of the traffic stop, but he hasn't done anything wrong. But at this point, they get an alert that says he's a felon, he's possessed a firearm by convicted felon in the last year, and he's been uh, selling cocaine. And obviously, with selling cocaine goes this you know concern for weapons and drug and guns. So they pat him down, they find a gun, he's a felon, he gets convicted, and he appeals. The um, Court of Appeals reverses the decision of the trial court, and they find that the evidence should have been suppressed. And so the Commonwealth appeals again, and they appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court. And the Virginia Supreme Court affirms the trial court and says it was proper to allow the evidence in, the suppression motion should have been denied, and the search was lawful. So basically what they find is that the knowledge of the officers, the detective who types this in the system but isn't anywhere to be seen on the day of the traffic stop, his knowledge, the detective's knowledge, is imputed to the knowledge to the officers who were on the scene uh, for the purposes of assessing whether they have reasonable suspicion to pat down the passenger. The court looks at the fact that the defendant is a felon. He'd possessed a firearm within the last year. He'd been involved in drug distribution in the last six months. Uh, with drugs goes guns. That gives the officers, in the eyes of the court, reasonable, articulable suspicion to believe that the defendant in this case was armed. And therefore, they were entitled to ask the defendant to step out of the car because they were in control of the traffic stop, and they were entitled to, um, to pat him down. By the way, they had figured out who he was because they asked him who he was, and, and the court said, again, you, you can ask a passenger in the car who they are uh, in a traffic stop. Um, if he had refused to say who he was, I don't think there's any consequences. You couldn't you know, hold him or detain him or whatever if he refused to identify himself, but he chose to identify himself because the officers asked him who he was. And the officers were entitled to ask him for that uh, during the course of the stop. So the court writes in this case, we find that a reasonably prudent police officer in light of his experience and with due regard to his own safety when executing a valid traffic stop has reasonable suspicion that an individual may be armed and dangerous based on the officer's knowledge of the individual's prior felony conviction, followed by repeated charges over the previous 11 months involving firearms and a drug offense closely associated with firearms. 
the remoteness of the events or convictions or the absence of weapons-related uh, or dangerous offenses in his criminal history might be, in that other case, right, sufficient that the individual's criminal history is not sufficient for an officer to reasonably be concerned about his safety or the safety of others in order to establish reasonable position for a frisk. But in this case, the defendant's criminal history of a prior, of prior felony conviction, his arrest 11 months prior for possession of a firearm by convicted felon, and his arrest six months prior for possession of cocaine with the intent to distribute was sufficient to provide the officers with reasonable suspicion that he may be armed and dangerous, which justified a pat-down, uh, a limited search of his outer clothing for weapons. So the court kind of reviews here the basics, right? They say, okay, a stop and a frisk is constitutional if two conditions are met. First, the stop itself has to be lawful. There has to be a lawful stop, right? We talked about this last week, right? If you have somebody who you believe is armed, but you don't have any lawful reason to stop them, then you don't get a frisk of that person. But here, he was a passenger in a valid traffic offense, and therefore, it was lawful. The second condition is that the officer reasonably suspects that the person stopped, including the passenger, is armed and dangerous, right? And so again, this goes to the Robinson question. We have this issue of, all right, so here in a car, you're lawfully stopped. We believe you're armed. Can we pat you down? And the answer is yes, in the eyes of the court. Although reasonable suspicion is required for both the initial stop or seizure and the subsequent frisk, once there's reasonable suspicion to believe that a crime has occurred or may be occurring to justify a stop, there doesn't need to be any additional reasonable suspicion that the passenger in the lawfully stopped vehicle himself is personally involved in criminal activity. The inquiry turns on whether there's reasonable suspicion the person subjected to the frisk is armed and dangerous. And here again, it's not just the criminal record, it's the fact of the, it's what's in the criminal record, right? He's a felon, he's just possessed a firearm within a matter of a few months before, he's just possessed drugs within distributed months before, that gives them the lawful authority to pat him down. So what we get here, though, is this uh, knowledge coming from another officer. So here, the officer was able to read the substance of the knowledge, was able to see what is it that the other officer knew. But what if you didn't know what the officer, the other officer knew? What if the other officer basically said, you need to go pat that guy down, you need to go frisk that guy, and you don't have time to figure out what his knowledge is or what his basis of knowledge is? That's a situation that comes up in Edmund versus Commonwealth. And Edmund is a court of appeals opinion from August of 2016. It comes out of a conviction in Richmond for murder, robbery, conspiracy, and use of a firearm. Um, it's a case where the defendant robbed a jewelry store in Richmond and shot and killed the, the, the store clerk. And he and his fellow co-conspirators fled to North Carolina. The detective who investigates this case learns from another officer who'd been doing a canvas in the area uh, that a man and a woman had been in a nearby bank a few hours earlier and had been acting strangely. They appeared to have a note of some kind. The woman was wearing a wig. They kept speaking quietly to each other until finally they walked up and asked for change for a dollar. They left in a Dodge Durango, and their Dodge Durango had been parked on the shoulder of the road with the hazard lights on. So the bank people thought this was really suspicious. They wrote the license plate down. They took note of the, what the people looked like, how they were dressed. And they gave this information to the police, who then found out that that same Durango was in the area of the jewelry store just before the robbery and murder. They also identified the suspect's clothing on the bank security video, which the bank had put aside for them. They got video from the jewelry store. They found that the jewelry store people, robbery people, were wearing the same clothes as the bank people were wearing. 
Um, and they could see on the video that those people were loading boxes and bags from the jewelry store into the Durango at the time of the murder. They are able to track the Durango down to North Carolina, and they contact the police in North Carolina. And an officer with a police department in North Carolina locates the Durango. So the Virginia detective says to the U.S. Marshals, tell the North Carolina officer to stop that vehicle. So the U.S. Marshals then convey to the North Carolina officer to stop the vehicle. The officer stops the vehicle. He uh, gets the identities of the people inside the car. He then transmits the identities of the people in the car to the detective in Richmond, who identifies two of the people in the car as the people from the bank incident and from the jewelry store security. And ultimately, they take these people into custody. They get a statement, and they arrest the defendant, and he gets convicted. But he, the defendant moves to suppress the stop. Uh, the trial court denies the motion, and they appeal to the Court of Appeals. And the Virginia Court of Appeals affirms and agrees that the evidence was lawfully admitted in court. The court found that the North Carolina officer had reasonable suspicion to stop the Durango and identify the passengers based on this collective knowledge doctrine. So this is the first time that we have the courts in Virginia officially holding that the collective knowledge doctrine applies in Virginia. They review uh, cases from the U.S. Supreme Court and the Fourth Circuit, where the U.S. Supreme Court and the Fourth Circuit had talked about this doctrine, and they basically say an officer is justified in acting on an instruction from another officer if the instructing officer, the detective in Richmond, for example, had sufficient information to justify taking the action himself. And here, the court agreed the detective in Richmond, if he had been there on the scene in North Carolina, would have had sufficient reasonable suspicion to stop that vehicle. Right? He could place the Durango in the area of the robbery. Um, he could match the clothing from the jewelry store video to the, to the clothing in the bank store video. And so there was plenty of reasonable suspicion to stop the vehicle. Simply because the information gets relayed from the detective in Richmond to the, to the U.S. Marshal, to the officer in North Carolina in the eyes of the court, doesn't have any effect upon whether or not the officer is entitled to rely on that knowledge. The U.S. Marshal is basically just a go-between. He's just transmitting information the way that dispatch might or the way that your commanding officer might or the way that, you know, another officer might be doing if they were, uh, you know, on the phone with you. The information from the detective who developed the reasonable suspicion, right, could was what the, uh, was what the court looked to in deciding whether the North Carolina officer's stop was lawful. Now, what's important about this, and, and, and an important caution, we're going to talk about this in a second when we talk about MacArthur, is that the court says here that the collective knowledge doctrine doesn't allow law enforcement to aggregate knowledge from other officers who haven't communicated with another, one another. So in here, they look back to this Fourth Circuit case we're going to talk about in a minute called Massenburg. And what Massenburg says, the Fort Nye's of Fourth Circuit, is just because officers who are communicating information from one to another from another, either using their RMS system or live, um, can pass their knowledge on doesn't mean that you could say, all right, well, Officer Jones never told me this, but he stopped the driver before for, and he's and he's found the driver is carrying a gun, and then Officer Miller has also stopped this vehicle before, and he's found the driver carrying a gun. They never told me about that, but we as a police department know this information, and so that's enough for us to believe that the driver of the car is carrying a gun, right? That's not permitted. Uh, and the court says this clearly in Edmund, and then we address this question again when we get to MacArthur versus Commonwealth, and that's the next case I want to talk about. So where we are right here is, uh, at this point, before we talk about MacArthur, is we now know 
Uh, we can rely on information given to us by other officers or passed on to us by other officers. We can also make stops that are directed by other officers based on their knowledge, even if they don't explain to us what the reason is for the stop. And we can conduct a frisk of a person if we have reasonable suspicion to believe that person is armed, even if they're the passenger in the car, and all that we know is we've stopped the vehicle lawfully and we have reasonable suspicion that they've got a gun on them, so long as the information we're relying on does give us reasonable suspicion, right? It might not be information we personally knew. It might be information that we read off of a screen from RMS or get from another officer or somebody relays to us, uh, or another officer knows, hey, that guy's got a gun on him. You need to pat him down. Um, but MacArthur addresses the case, and this, is, and this is a case that comes out again from the Court of Appeals, and it was just decided on July 28th. This addresses a situation where you have another convicted felon carrying a gun, driving a car, and he's stopped, again, for an equipment violation. And when the officer stops the vehicle, he gets the defendant's ID, he gets information about who the defendant is, and then he walks back to the car, and based on the defendant's behavior at the, at the car, the officer says, you know what, get out of the car, I'm going to do a pat-down, I'm going to do a protective sweep of the car, basically, a pat-down of the passenger compartment of the car to see if there's a firearm in here. So the defendant complies. He gets out of the car, um, and the officer enters the car. Very quickly, underneath the car seat, he locates a firearm. Now, what's important to note here is that while this is taking place, while the officer is, is, is patting down, conducting the protective sweep of the, of the interior of the car, and remember, again, you can't physically pat down. When I say pat down, I mean, it's difficult to describe. We, we kind of struggle with the terminology for what you're doing with a car when you're frisking a car, right? I mean, you're not literally frisking the car. You're not taking your hands and patting down the car. You're not, I mean, a, a, a pat down of a car is a search for weapons, and you can only look in places where there might be a weapon, but you are basically searching, right? I mean, you're looking underneath the car seat. If there's a console, you're opening the console. If there's a glove box and it's unlocked, you're opening the glove box. And you might be moving things around. It looks like a search, right? But so what sometimes courts will do is they'll call it a protective sweep. I, I think that's a little confusing because protective sweep is also used when we go inside of a house and we're concerned that there's another person inside the house. So protective sweep inside of a house is often used to refer to me searching to see if there's another person inside of a house. And protective sweep of a vehicle is used to describe sort of a Terry pat down of a vehicle. It's it's confusing. We don't have a good word, um, and I wish there were a better word. Maybe we'll think of one sometime. But anyway, for what he's doing. But this is what the officer's doing inside this car. While he's doing this, there's another officer on the scene, and the other officer on the scene is back at the car. He's got the defendant's ID, and he's running the defendant through, um, yeah, you know, VSIN and NCIC and all that kind of stuff. So while the other officer is back at the car running him through VSIN and NCIC and so on, the other officer gets an alert through their records management system. And the records management system says, this guy, look out for this guy. He's dangerous. He's a member of the Crips. Um, he, uh, yeah, so he's somebody who you, might, you should be concerned might be armed. At the point that the officer learns this information, the pat-down of the, of the vehicle is already basically underway is already happening. The officer who's running the backup officer, the officer in the back uh, at the vehicle who's running this guy through VC and NCIC gets this information, but he gets it too late to let the uh, primary officer, the officer who's doing the protective suite, pat down, whatever of the car, it, too late to let him know about this. So 
the officer, the primary officer, the officer doing the pat down or the protective sweep or whatever, finds underneath the driver's seat this gun. And then at that point, he learns that the defendant is a felon. And so he arrests the defendant for possession of a firearm by convicted felon. So notice why this case is different, right? This case is different because it's not as if the officer is the backup officer radios and says, hey, look, you should go pat this guy down or you should pat this car down. Um, I got a concern that he might have a gun. That's not what happens here. There's no information that's conveyed. Instead, we have one officer who has information sufficient to justify a pat down of a car. And we have another officer who doesn't have that information, doesn't have sufficient information, doesn't have any indication that this vehicle should be patted down, but pats it down anyway. And I should say that the officer who patted down the car thought he had enough information to pat down the car, that, but everybody agrees in this case that he didn't, that he he did he he misjudged whether he had the right to pat down this car okay so the court reverses the decision of the trial court to admit the gun and they say the evidence should have been suppressed the court of appeals basically said they would not impute would not pass on the knowledge from one officer to the other as a justification for the protective sweep the frisk of the vehicle and it was error to allow the evidence into court so the court found that horizontal, basically, aggregations of knowledge, which is, in other words, information when it's passed from an officer to another officer after the stop has taken place, that's not a sufficient basis, a reasonable basis for, uh, for police action. And so notice this is different than before. The officers had the information before. Here they don't get the information until afterwards. And so an officer, they agree, they say, you know, we all agree the rule is clear. An officer is justified in taking action on instructions from another officer if the instructing officer had sufficient information to take the action himself, right? That's the Edmund ruling. Um, the Massenburg case, which is a Fourth Circuit case that all these courts are looking at, um, had said, you know, there's vertical collection of collective knowledge. And one officer's conclusion is conveyed to another. That's completely appropriate as a basis for... Uh, officers taking action, but that's different than uh, aggregating the information, putting the information together after the action is taken. So as a result, you only have collective knowledge that's vertical. In other words, um, an officer, when an officer acts on instructions from another officer, the action is justified if the instructing officer has sufficient information to take the action themselves. The instructing officer's knowledge is imputed to the acting officer. Um, and they agree here again in this case that there really wasn't a sufficient basis to, for the officer at the, at the, um, who was the primary officer who actually did the pat down to do a pat down of this car. I mean, the officer who did the pat down in this case didn't do it because of the alert, right? He did it because the defendant was making, um, was, was basically nervous and, the officers, you know, the court said, look, you stopped him for a defective fog light. He didn't make any furtive movements. He was cooperative. He was polite. Um, the officer asked him, may I search your vehicle? And the defendant said, no. Um, and the defendant said, no, you can't. It's not my vehicle. It's my girlfriend's vehicle. But that was a reasonable answer, right? You can't use someone's refusal to, uh, to uh, permit a search of a vehicle as a basis for belief, for conducting a search, right? Otherwise, the mean, otherwise it's not consensual. I mean, that's not a, um, it, it sort of, it sort of eliminates the concept of consent if somebody refusing consent can be used against them. And so again, where he's made no furtive movements, he's cooperative, he's polite, he exits the vehicle upon request, there's nothing else other than the defective uh, fog light, 
the equipment violation in this case, there just wasn't a sufficient basis to pat down the interior of the car. And so uh, the court uh, suppresses the evidence in this case. Um, I, I will say that, you know, looking at these cases this week then, uh, especially looking back at Smith, which is the Supreme Court case from 2011, you know, the court is making a pretty clear statement here that when you're dealing with armed people that you believe may be armed and therefore dangerous to you, even if they're the passenger in the car, um, they are willing to give you the authority to pat that person down to determine if that person has a weapon. What they're setting, though, is a very clear objective standard for what is reasonable suspicion. And uh, a good example of what reasonable suspicion is, obviously, is that criminal history that Edmund had, I mean, excuse me, that Smith had, um, or the, uh, the actions of the defendant in the Edmund case. Um, and I do encourage you, as all, all officers, to go back and read the Terry opinion. I mean, we talk about Terry stops and Terry versus Ohio and so on, but I think everybody should read Terry versus Ohio, um, and you can just Google it and, you know, Google Terry versus Ohio, and you can find a link to the case and read the facts of the case, because they are really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a classic example of officers using their training and experience and factual observations to articulate why it is they believe that this person has a weapon. Um, and you'll notice, and the last thing I'll just say is here again, in all three of these cases, the officers do a really good job of articulating the facts in this case. What is it that gave them the basis for believing that the person was armed? Any court in a situation where you're conducting a pat-down is going to ask you to articulate specific facts that are unique to this defendant uh, that you learned about this defendant, you learned your observations, or somebody else passed on to you that they know about this particular defendant that says to you, in this particular case, unlike other cases, like the average case, this guy has a weapon, or I have a reasonable articulable suspicion to, to be concerned that this person has a weapon on them or something that might hurt me, and that's why I'm patting them down. So that's what we're gonna. That's what we're talking about this week. Um, next week we will probably talk about some of the new proposals that have come up in the General Assembly. Um, it, it, again, it's kind of, it's really hard to say what's going to happen this week at the special session. Um, so it's hard to predict where we're going to be a week from now. If anybody's going to be voting on anything, if it's going to be debate, if there's going to be amendments. You know, your guess is as good as mine, um, and I don't think a lot of people are sure, but. Uh, we'll do that, or maybe we'll talk about some new cases, and then we'll put off the General Assembly session talk till um, till next time. But uh, other than that, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Stay safe, and don't get captured.